0: Good day, everybody, and welcome back to Med Conversations. Finally, so it's been a really long break. Smack bang in between a two-part episode, we've decided to take a two-month break. Unintentionally, just kind of crept up on us. I'm here with Beck.
1: Hi, everyone. We're back finally.
0: So, second part of uh, of cirrhosis today. So we're going to talk about the complications of cirrhosis. Which is actually like probably the most important part, I'd say.
1: But still probably a good idea to listen to part one first. Mm. Or if you want to mix things up, I guess you could jump in here. So what, what actually are we talking about today? What so, are these complications?
0: So just to flag the different topics we'll go through. So first of all, portal hypertension and the complications of portal hypertension, which are what, babe?
1: Uh So we'll talk about variceal hemorrhages, splenomegaly, ascites and the stuff that comes with ascites.
0: And then we'll talk about what happens when you actually lose your liver function. So that's when you have hepatic encephalopathy and coagulopathy.
1: We might mention hepatocellular carcinoma briefly.
0: And then we'll talk about all the other organs that are affected when your liver packs up and goes home. So you've got your hepatorenal syndrome, your hepatopulmonary syndrome, your hepatopulmonary hypertension, and then really systemic things like electrolyte disturbances, hepatic osteodystrophy, anemia, and immune dysfunction. But to introduce all of these ideas, we'll go through a case, as we always do. So let's introduce Jono. So Jono is a 36-year-old Vietnamese construction worker with known hep C, and he comes to you for a routine health check. You order a full blood exam as part of the battery of tests and find that he has platelets of 120.
1: So normal is 150 or above, so it's a little on the low side.
0: And you notice this. It's not that abnormal, but you notice it, and that's kind of weird. So you think about what what that might be. So before we we say what that might be, let's talk about portal hypertension for a bit, just coincidentally, no reason for that.
1: Okay, so I find this is... Quite confusing, and I think that sometimes we we realise we've missed the building blocks. So, where actually are the portal veins?
0: So that's the they're the veins that carry blood from the GI system to your liver. So all the stuff you absorbed in your gut, um, which includes a lot of bad stuff that you need to detoxify, all the drugs and things, they go straight to your liver first, where they're all processed. So the veins that take stuff from your gut to liver—that's your portal veins. And so, what's portal hypertension?
1: Uh, When the blood in that ends up being at higher pressure.
0: Jeez, medicine's complicated sometimes. So there is quite a technical definition. So I'm just going to clearly say this is often the weeds. This is beyond med student level. But if you're interested, the technical definition is when the hepatic venous pressure gradient is greater than 5. So you can actually uh, definitely diagnose portal hypertension with a radiological procedure called a catheterization of of the hepatic vein. And so what they do, they get the catheter and they wedge it in into the liver, which is called the wedged hepatic venous pressure. And so that's kind of a proxy for your portal vein pressure. And then they subtract that. Uh, they, sorry, then they subtract the free hepatic venous pressure from that number. And that's called your hepatic venous pressure gradient. So basically, if that wedge pressure is more than 5 higher than your free venous pressure, you've got portal hypertension. So that, for
1: those of us who aren't hepatologists, I think we'll go back to that thing about portal hypertension is when the pressure in the portal veins is high.
0: Exactly. That's all you really need to know.
1: And then, the, what, do you have a system for this with how you classify what's caused the portal hypertension?
0: So quite similar to renal failure, you can talk about prehepatic, intrahepatic, and posthepatic causes. Love it. Love it. So most of, most of the causes of portal hypertension are intrahepatic. So cirrhosis of some sort. But you've got to think that something in the actual vessels themselves can also cause portal hypertension. So, prehepatic, so that means the clot is in what vessel, Beck?
1: Oh, you've already given it away. So, the giveaway there was it's a clot. So, you can get a portal vein thrombosis.
0: Yeah, so prehepatic, so remember the portal vein goes from the gut to the liver. So, if you've got a clot in that space, that's going to cause hypertension. And then you've got posthepatic, so what's that?
1: So, the only one that I know of here is Bud Chiari syndrome.
0: Yeah, I think that's the only kind of clinically significant. So, that's when you've got a clot in the hepatic vein. So, that's after the liver.
1: So, pre-hepatic, we're talking about portal vein thrombosis. And the name for thrombosis after the liver in the hepatic veins is Bud Chiari this episode is about cirrhosis. So we're mostly the rest of the time going to be talking about cirrhosis and how that causes portal hypertension. And that's
0: by far the most common cause. So let's talk about for a second how cirrhosis causes portal hypertension. So as you can imagine, cirrhosis causes a whole bunch of fibrosis and that gives uh, causes mechanical distortion and that leads to increased vascular resistance. So
1: is it Does that just mean stiff vessels?
0: No, you've just got a stiff liver which kind of causes increased resistance on the back pressure on the vessels right so that's the main way but then there's this other way as well which is actually quite relevant to understand lots of different things with cirrhosis so it's worth worth um, mentioning in that-
1: to this bit
0: yeah <laughs> come back now so this is uh increased splanchnic blood flow So the splanchnic, I cannot say this word.
1: I just feel like it sounds like a space station.
0: I've never, I've never. Actually,
1: in the last podcast, I was calling it splanchnic the whole time (laughs) I've been, I've had that pointed out to me. So splanchnic vessels, yeah, which are the arterioles that are supplying all those abdominal organs, like the gut, the spleen and all that.
0: So this is the arterial system. So this is on the other side to the portal veins. And basically, what happens in cirrhosis, you get a whole bunch of vasodilators like nitrous oxide and too little vasoreactivity to vasoconstrictions um, such as uh, noradrenaline. So basically, you get dilated splanchnic um, vessels and dilated um, uh, arterioles, so then eventually that transmits to increased flow through the portal veins and that causes portal hypertension. All right, so why does it, why do we care? what does it matter?
1: I guess this is the starting point for a lot of those complications that come from cirrhosis.
0: Yeah, exactly. So the variceal hemorrhages, the ascites, all that stuff. That's why we need to know if someone has portal hypertension. And you can actually start looking for some of those complications, namely esophageal varices. So a diagnosis of portal hypertension is a really important one to to make. And how do you diagnose it?
1: I guess a lot of the time we diagnose it almost retrospectively. We see those complications and then and then work out that there probably would be underlying portal hypertension. But I think that the the gold standard is that thing that you were talking about before with the wedge pressure, which is rarely done. Yeah, we use lots of other imaging, ultrasound. I've seen MRI, CT.
0: Yeah, ultrasound's the most common one that I've seen. All right, so link it back to Jono, our patient with um, hepatitis C.
1: To remind me, you were saying that he had low-ish platelets.
0: That's right, his platelets were 120. So what, what the hell does that have to do with uh, portal hypertension? Beck?
1: Well, I was kind of hoping you'd explain this.
0: All right. So you get back pressure from portal hypertension leads to congestive splenomegaly, so your spleen gets really big. And then basically all your platelets hide in there, they get sequestered. So Jono doesn't have fewer platelets in his system. They're just hiding in his spleen.
1: So the way that I think about this is, if, let's say you turn on, this might be getting a little bit too elaborate with the metaphors. Let's say you turn on a hose and then you put your finger over the end of the hose. And in a cartoon kind of world, it sort of blocks up, you know, backs up into the hose and it all swells up. That's what the spleen is doing.
0: Feel like you've over-explained this, but if someone has found this <laughs> useful, let us know because I'm sceptical. Uh, but that so that's a classical explanation. That there are some studies that blame thrombopoietin and some other complex stuff, but for our simpleton doctor minds, that's all we really need to know.
1: So splenic sequestration of platelets.
0: And does it matter? Is uh, Jono going to start bleeding everywhere now, Beck?
1: No, most of the time it doesn't matter clinically at all.
0: But it was a really important thing to pick up on that consultation because it means he's got portal hypertension. We think. So, well, and we're about to confirm. So we all uh, order an abdominal ultrasound or Jono and uh, you get the report which says uh, increased liver echogenicity and nodularity suggestive of cirrhosis. Evidence of moderate splenomegaly and a mild amount of ascites. So he's got portal hypertension.
1: Hmm. Okay.
0: Alright. So, so now what? So what do you do next?
1: well firstly this guy is in australia in 2017 and has hepatitis c so we really need to be treating that
0: yeah so first of all yeah you're probably a bit worried about uh, your liability at this point because he should have been treated already that's all right so we start treating the hepatitis c and then the next thing you got to do is start worrying about all the complications of cirrhosis and portal hypertension that you need to pick up in this guy so ascites, it mentioned on the report here, ascites. So is that I, as a medical student, I always thought this would, made sense. Patients have liver failure; they stop making albumin, low albumin means stuff leaks into the peritoneal cavity. But that's not actually the pathophysiology. It's all related to uh, portal hypertension. So it's actually hydrostatic pressure in the portal veins that is pushing fluid out. So how do you first of all, how do you diagnose ascites?
1: Well, sometimes you can see it when you're walking past the room. Sometimes it's really, really obvious. And
0: that's what you want in your physician's exam. If you walk in and someone's got this huge distended belly and thin arms, like, boom, I know what's going on Yeah. That's a, that's a real godsend. It's not always that easy. So sometimes you have to pick it up with actual examination maneuvers. What do you do?
1: Um, so you can check for a fluid thrill.
0: Never seen anyone do that successfully, really?
1: no. Oh I actually I always I've never done it successfully, but I always do it. <laughs> it's kinda of like if you flick uh-huh. I think we said this in the last podcast, if you sort of like it's like a waterbed, like you sort of push on one side or flick it on one side and then you see that the um, ripples go across the abdomen. Except that like Dalva said, I've never actually seen no, it. No, no
0: one does it. One
1: thing on. though is shifting shifting dullness.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's where you kind of um, percuss until you get dullness in their flex and then you flip them up on their side And if it's fluid causing the dullness, it'll kind of roll down to the bottom of the peritoneal cavity and it'll become resonant. But it's often quite difficult to pick small amounts of um, ascites on an examination. I've been wrong so many times. And how do I know I'm wrong? I look at the ultrasound or CT report, which is really sensitive for picking up small amounts of ascites. Mm. So the next question is, they do have ascites. How do you know it's due to the portal hypertension? So if we think back to our pathophysiology of how it's hydrostatic pressure rather than osmotic pressure from low albumin. Mm. uh, What does that mean? If you do a paracentesis and you draw out the fluid, what do you expect?
1: So you would expect that there'd be quite a big difference in the albumin content of the serum compared to the ascites.
0: Yeah, exactly. So that's called the SAG, the Serum Albumin Acidic Gradient. So because it's um, hydrostatic pressure pushing the fluid out the albumin is actually much higher in the serum than it is in the, in the ascites. And 11 is the magic number. So if it's greater than that, then it's uh, probably due to portal hypertension of some sort. Uh, and if it's less than 11, what does that mean?
1: Well, I'm doing an oncology rotation at the moment, so that's generally what we see. So malignancy. Um, yep. But other ones to think about are infection, inflammation, nephrotic syndrome, more or less just anything that's not portal hypertension.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that means it's an exud- exudative process rather than a transitive process. All right, so who cares again? So they've got a bit of fluid in their cavity. What does it matter?
1: Well, it seems like it's pretty bloody uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, but it's a very common reason why people come into hospital where they say you got to get rid of this fluid. I feel like I'm, I'm 40 weeks pregnant. And apparently you can actually get 35 litres of fluid. I haven't seen that much.
1: Thirty-five. That's,
0: like That's what the internet told me. And I believe everything the internet says. I haven't seen that much. The most I've seen is probably like ten liters, but still, ten liters is pretty damn uncomfortable. Yeah. And then the other thing that can happen, like quite a significant proportion of the population has a has a hole in their diaphragm, so it means that all this fluid gets sucked up from the peritoneal cavity, cavity into the pleural cavity, and that's called a hepatic hydrothorax. And that's when you get, like, really symptomatic from shortness of breath. Mm. And some people actually, like, suck all of the fluid up. So they've got nothing in their peritoneal cavity and it's all in their pleural effusion. You think they've got some kind of lung issue, but it's actually all just the ascites.
1: And that's because it's lower pressure, I imagine, in the pleural space or...
0: Ah, so I wasn't anticipating that question, Maybe they're lying lying upside down or something. That's all
1: right. I think we need to keep our listeners hanging every now and then.
0: Yeah, right in if you know why. And the other, the other um, thing that can happen, it can get infected. Mm. Um, so that's called spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, which is a like, shocking thing to have. We'll talk about it more in a second. Uh, but that's a really bad uh, complication of the societies as well. So let's talk about um, the treatment of ascites. So if we break it down, so you, whenever whenever you get asked on a ward or in an osce or something, how are you going to treat something? You can always take it back a step and use this same ag- algorithm every time: lifestyle, medications, and interventions. Mm. So if you've got your lifestyle things in ascites, it's actually really potent and probably the best thing that they can do for their ascites. So what's that, Beck?
1: Mm, well, one of them happens automatically a lot of the time by being in hospital, and that's alcohol abstinence.
0: <laughs> Very optimistic about humans. <laughs> uh, I've had more than a few people try and try and drink the the alcohol bottles for the hand wash, but that's all right. Sometimes it happens.
1: They had to confiscate them from one of the wards I was on once.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. Then the other thing, you is it actually a really good thing if you're an intern to think of because it's often forgotten. But you can go and talk to your ward clerk, make sure that the dietary restrictions for this patient are that they will be have a low sodium diet. Yep. If you're in clinic talking to these patients or they're going home, suggest to them no more than 2 grams a day. They'll have no idea what that means in their day-to-day life. So you just say don't add salt to anything and try to get low-sodium products where you can.
0: And for God's sake, don't give them normal saline. You're not going to have a happy gastro, Reg, if you've given their cirrhosis patient a bunch of uh, normal saline. So interesting, yeah, just salt restriction, not fluid restriction. Fluid restriction doesn't help at all. Mm. It's just salt, so it's quite different to heart failure. It's it's the reverse
1: and I actually think it's worth really highlighting this point that you just said. Don't give the normal saline. We think of it as being really benign, but in this case, it's not. I actually write it on the allergies sometimes, avoid normal saline on the drug chart, because it's something that you know interns call up, give phone orders for, that kind of thing. And it's a really big trap for young players. I have been yelled at by a gastro consultant when I made this mistake the first time. So let me help you avoid that situation. Yeah, absolutely. It's also better for the patients.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Apart from your ego. <laughs>
1: okay, you said medications was the next one. So, we yeah, talking yeah. about lifestyle medications. Medications.
0: So, it's all diuretics. Mm. So, cirrhosis patients get this weird ratio of spironolactone to fruizumate where they get way more spiro than fruizumate. It's 100 to 40 uh, with a maximum dose of 400 to 160. So, that's 400 milligrams of spironolactone, which is a huge dose. Mm. Uh, but apparently, some people do get that. And uh, spironolactone in huge doses is apparently uh, better than feruzumide for shifting fluid, and it's better at maintaining potassium homeostasis in cirrhotic patients.
1: And it does make sense, because spironolactone is an aldosterone antagonist, and an excess of aldosterone is one of the, I guess, the sort of end products of liver cirrhosis.
0: Yeah, and now they've got two reasons. They have gynecomastia as well. <laughs> um, so what was I going to say? Oh, so the other thing is, um, if you... If you're smashing them with diuretics, you really got to be careful about the renal failure, which uh, we'll talk about later. Paterenal syndrome is a real issue, and that really limits how much um, acidic fluid you can get off with diuresis, and hypertension is a real problem in cirrhotic patients as well. Mm.
1: Okay, so that's lifestyle, medications, interventions?
0: So paracentesis, um, basically popping a needle in the gastro resident will we'll get the fluid off. Um uh. So then, there's there's a real issue with um, liver patients that ascites is the reason they keep coming to hospital. That they're, they're called the frequent flies. So you have those people that you take off like ten liters in four days, they're back um, for another paracentesis, which is not not the way it should go. It's really bad for them, really bad for the hospital. So there's that there's two options here. Option number one is they've got diuretic um, resistant ascites. Oh, uh, I
1: thought you meant options like. Possibilities for how you could treat them. Yeah, no. So possibilities of what's possible growing. explanations. What, yeah. yeah. So
0: they've got either diuretic resistant ascites, or they're non-compliant with the salt restriction, or some combination of the two. Little
1: column A, little column B.
0: That's usually the case. But in in a true patient, that's um, in a truly diuretic resistant ascites, um, if the patient is completely compliant with their diet, they shouldn't be coming back any more than every every fortnight or so. So if they're coming back more than that, they're probably non-compliant with their salt restriction.
1: Mm, okay.
0: And then apart from just doing lots of frequent paracentesis and keep telling them to lay off the mega ring, what else can you do?
1: So, speaking of procedures, there's another procedure called the tips procedure. I always forget what that's called, but fortunately, it's, it's written in front of me: transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt
0: yeah so that's basically you go to radiology and they they put a, a synthetic shunt um, which kind of just completely bypasses the liver as if it as if it wasn't doing anything um, but as you can imagine, what's the major complication with that Bec?
1: so the liver was actually doing something mm. and it was helping to clear out toxins and um if you bypass the liver, you bypass the opportunity to clear out the toxins, and those toxins can go straight to your brain, so that's encephalopathy. So increased risk of hepatic encephalopathy.
0: Yeah, so my, my general impression with uh, TIPS is that it's becoming less fashionable these days. We don't do it as much as we did in the crazy 80s. All right, moving on to the other major complication of ascites, which is spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. So that's a really severe complication where you get infection of the acidic fluid. And it's caused by bacterial translocation from the gut. Lots of bugs can cause it, but the most common ones are E. coli, Klebsiella, and Strep pneumonia. So it's not all gram negatives. It can be gram positive, actually. Mm. And how have you seen people present like this in the past?
1: Always the Met calls. Um, Oh, really? Yeah, lots of times. That's actually the only time I've ever seen it. But patients can be quite unwell. Mm. Um, Generally, they get a fever in the context of you knowing that they have ascites. Then you realize they've got other elevated inflammatory markers like increased white cell count. And the ascites, which usually is a bit uncomfortable, but that's it, can be painful. Not always, but it can be painful. So I guess if you've got abdominal pain, fever, raised inflammatory markers with ascites, this is almost a, it's almost clinched.
0: Yeah, you've just got to think about it. anyone who's unwell with cirrhosis though, really. It doesn't have to be that full triad of symptoms. How you diagnose it, you get a, get some of the acidic fluid off, and you check a neutrophil count, and it's got to be greater than two hundred and fifty. And the major differential here, so this is a cracker of a um, of an MCQ as well, is uh, in that secondary bacteria, peritonitis. And the way you mm-hmm. differentiate that is if it grows multiple bugs. So if it's grown multiple bugs, then it's actually like a perforation of the gut, um, which is. Which has led to the leakage of a bunch of literal crap in your peritoneal cavity, and it grows lots of it grows a zoo, it grows lots of different bugs. Mm. And it's really important to differentiate between the two, because if you put a cirrhotic patient with SBP under the knife, they're pretty high risk of dying. But if you don't put someone with secondary bacterial peritonitis, so not spontaneous, if you put them under, if you don't put them under the knife, then they're probably going to die. So very high mortality diagnosis to get wrong. Um,
1: so how do you treat it if you think that it is SBP?
0: Yeah, how do you treat it? So it's usually a third-generation cephalosporin. So Keftriaxone is a typical one that I see. The mm. thing is that a lot of patients are actually already on prophylaxis, mm. and that's with um, Bactrim or Norfloxacin. And if they're on that, then they've got a high risk of enterococcal infection, and that's not covered by Keftriaxone. So you've you got to bring out the Tazacin and contribute to antibiotic resistance for a bit.
1: Right, and my understanding of this is um, that it's not that patients who are on prophylaxis are therefore more likely to get enterococcus, but it's that if they do, despite the prophylaxis, end up getting an infection, it's probably not an infection caused by the kind of bacteria that's covered by their prophylaxing drugs.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, and it's a, it's a terrible thing to do. Uh, to, to get, sorry, um, your prognosis. It's in- a
1: terrible thing to do to someone as yeah. well. Like if you're just walking around just injecting someone's ascites with bacteria.
0: This is a bad thing to do. Um, because they have a 25% in-hospital mortality rate, which mm. is pretty damn high. And
1: 40% survival after one year.
0: All right, Becky's now going to force me to recap what we've done so far. <laughs> so just quickly, we've talked about portal hypertension um, and how cirrhosis is the main cause of that. Uh, due to mechanical distortion, as well as splanchnic dilatation. how at that time, yeah,
1: you did.
0: And then we talked a little bit about about ascites, how it's due to portal hypertension, not due to low albumin. And we've talked about how to treat that. So you got salt is low salt is really cr- critical.
1: No normal saline.
0: Yeah, um, diuretics are really critical. More spiro than furosemide. And then you can just tap them lots of times, and you can give them tips as well. And then we've just briefly had a chat about uh, SBP and its main differential, secondary bacterial peritonitis. Alright, so back to Jono. So six months after starting Jono with some diuretics, you tell, you've tell you told him to lay off the high sodium ring you get a call in the middle of the night. The registrar informs you that Jono has presented vomiting blood and is hemodynamically unstable. Woe is me, you say, if only this could have been prevented. Who would have thought that this person with portal hypertension would end up with what?
1: So I'm guessing you're being a little bit sarcastic here. Um, So it sounds like varices to me, ruptured varices.
0: Mm. So varices are abnormally dilated vessels with a tortuous course. That's the Google definition. And if you get a back pressure from portal hypertension, it creates this dilatation of veins. In particular spots so these are the kind of the pressure points you get rectal varices doesn't matter but your bilical varices doesn't matter they're called caput medusae, but you also get esophageal varices which are a big deal which is mm. what um, gets gastroenterologists uh, up in the middle of the night and uh, these pressure points occur because these are the portosystemic systemic uh, shunts so these are the spots where the portal circulation hooks directly on the systemic venous circulation so esophageal varices so did we do the right thing here with Johnny? could we have predicted that he was going to get them given when knew he had portal hypertension
1: yeah so most people who have portal portal hypertension need to or all people who have portal hypertension need to get surveillance so you actually need to go in there do a gastroscopy and look to see if they have them
0: yeah so seven percent of cirrhotics develop varices every year and 90 percent eventually do um, so, screen, you screen them every year if they've got small varices um, the first time you screen them and the second year, they have no varices. But really important thing to think about um, in terms of preventative, secondary preventative medicine. Mm. So, why why do we care? Like, why are we screening for them? Is there something we can do about it? Obviously, yes. Um, so, medication-wise, you Propanolol. Yeah. So, non-selective beta blocker like propanolol. But it's usually pretty hard to use it actually because a lot of cirrhotics have a lot of issues with their blood pressure. Mm. But if you can, then you use propranolol as much as they'll tolerate. But the second thing is you do band them so they just kind of suck them up with this like little vacuum thing and then pop the, pop the band over the top. And uh, that means that they won't bleed. But there we, we missed the boat, Johnny. He has uh, got us up in the middle of the night Uh, Because he's acutely bleeding from his varices that we didn't pick up earlier. How do we manage him?
1: I think, even before we talk about management, just as, as a quick word, that this is one of those conditions where if you are an intern in the emergency department and you pick up a patient and they have a history that sounds like it's this, get help straight away from someone more senior because these patients sometimes look okay, their OBS might be relatively stable, and they deteriorate extremely quickly. So, The way you need to manage them, I guess step one is ask for help. Um, Mm. So you're looking at someone who's usually got a lowish blood pressure normally. So if they normally sit around 95 or something, it might be even lower than that. So you'll think, okay, I know what to do here. I give them a bolus of normal saline. Except you've been listening to this and you don't do that. So what you want to do is resuscitate them with other fluids. And the best thing is actually blood or albumin. You're wanting to get to a blood pressure around 90. You don't want to get too much higher than that. And this is a general principle with lots of other bleeding vessels. If someone has a bleed in their brain, for example, bleed anywhere else, you want their blood pressure to be good enough, but not too high that it's going to hose out. Yep. So we're resuscitating them. And then what else?
0: So then there's a couple of other things you need to do that aren't necessarily intuitive. Uh, people with liver disease have really suppressed immune systems. So you got. To, it's actually been shown to have a mortality benefit to just take blood cultures and give them antibiotics, even if they've got no evidence of infection at all. Mm. Um, so usually we give Keftriaxone. And then the other non-intuitive thing is Turlipressin. Mm. So that's a synthetic vasopressin analog um, with relative specificity for that splenchnic um, circulation that we keep mentioning and it causes vasoconstriction in these vessels. Um, and given vasodilation was a cause of portal hypertension, that means we're reducing the portal hypertension with that, with that and reducing the amount of blood that's hosing out.
1: So reading about this always makes me feel really proud of Australia because we use turleipressin, and in our lectures we're told that octreotide is a poor cousin of turleipressin. But in the States, turleipressin doesn't even exist. So sorry uh, to any of you listening from America, but... Uh, well, I, guess, I guess we're better.
0: I guess people in, people with cirrhosis in the States, but we don't have great private health insurance. Mm. Uh, anyway, so while we're, while we're talking about Jono, the other reason he's bleeding a lot is because he's got cirrhosis and they've got increased bleeding risk. Um, so one of the main things the liver does, of course, is um, synthesis of clotting factors. And if it's not working, you're going to get fewer of those. And uh, particularly the vitamin K-dependent factors, so that's the TV channels, Beck.
1: Back in the day, yeah, two, seven, nine, and
0: ten. Yeah, YouTube's kind of ruined that, hasn't it, for the next gen level? Oh well. um, and that's because uh, vitamin K requires biliary excretion, so you reabsorb it um, in your biliary system. And if that's all blocked off through cirrhosis, you're just losing a whole bunch of vitamin K. Mm-hmm. And that's also why vitamin K works in. Um, in cirrhosis patients then they've also got some abnormal uh, platelet function and then a whole bunch of other stuff so they've got lots of reasons for increased bleeding risk but does that mean liver patients are auto anticoagulated
1: it's a word we throw around a bit but not really because they also have a lot of thrombotic factors so pro thrombotic factors elevated factor eight
0: yeah, so that's the only clotting factor that goes up in cirrhosis and that's because it's produced by endothelial cells as well as the liver and then like all the factors, is broken down by the liver. So when the liver's not working, your factor A goes up and then you've also got decreased protein C and uh, protein S which are breakdown clots and they're also made by the liver and then also increased levels of von Willebrand factor C. So basically, all you need to remember, there's uh, things that increase your bleeding risk, and then also a whole bunch of stuff that increases your uh, thrombosis risk. So, does that mean that nature is beautiful, and even though you've got a shut down liver, you're like your normal? Zero yeah, some zero. No, no, it just means you kind of get the worst of both worlds. Oh. They they bleed a lot um, mm-hmm. when they get varices and things, and it's really dangerous to kind of give them transexamic acid and other stuff that might stop them from bleeding um, because they're also pro thrombotic, and then if they get a if they get a um, portal vein thrombosis, which is really common, um, then it's really scary to give them anticoagulation because they bleed a lot from their varices. So it just kind of ends there in a bad place. All right. So back to Jono. So you got him through. You, you missed the varices, but you did kind of save the day in the middle of the night, and he's still alive. Six months later, he presents to ED confused.
1: Can't catch a break.
0: hmm uh, what do you reckon's going on, Beck?
1: Uh, in the context of this lecture, I'd say it's probably going to be hepatic encephalopathy because we didn't get to that bit yet.
0: <laughs> um, so you diagnose that uh, mostly just by talking to them. Um, so there's something called the West Haven criteria, and there are four grades. Um, grade one is where there's like a lack of awareness. Um, maybe they're a little bit euphoric sometimes, and they're just kind of not following what you're saying. You're to explain everything three times. Consent is more difficult than it should be. And then all the way to grade four uh, which is coma so that's um just kind of looking at them and then obviously there's the main clinical sign and that's the flap asterixis or negative myoclonus we just ask them to um, put their hands up once i did that with a patient um and as i always do i'm like stop the bus stop the bus and they put his hand he puts his hand up and i'm kind of waiting for a flap and then i get distracted and walk out of the room um, <laughs> for uh for a few minutes like literally like probably 10 15 minutes at a few things and i come back and he's talking his hands up he's like i think i've stopped the bus oh, <laughs> so, so i graded him grade two <laughs> on the west Ham criteria.
1: no flap but confusion
0: very confused um Um, And then the other thing you can do with hepatic encephalopathy, uh, just a dirty little secret between you and me, because gastroenterologists hate doing this, and that's an ammonia level. Mm, Really? Yeah, I think it's useful. Gastroenterologists don't like it because it causes them a lot of problems because all their patients have cirrhosis anyway, so we know their ammonia is probably going to be up. Mm. Um, And it's not useful to track, so they get a lot of calls saying, oh, it's gone up 50, what do I do um, and it's not it doesn't it doesn't track the severity of hepatic encephalopathy at all, but as an on off thing it's very useful it's not normal for someone to have a, a high ammonia and if someone's confused and you don't know why an ammonia uh, is a really useful thing to do because if it's high it's only three things it can be it's going to be either cirrhosis uh, sodium valprate, which is very easy to find or a urea cycle disorder which is very rare. Um, So really useful in that situation.
1: And so in this, sorry, we didn't prep this either, but in this situation where you know that this guy has cirrhosis and is probably decompensated, if he had a normal um, ammonia, would you go looking for something else? How sensitive is it?
0: I don't think he necessarily would. Um, it It might make you think of other things as well. Uh, but in someone new who has known cirrhosis, probably not that useful, but to differentiate it in the first place. Mm. If the, you find someone toes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've been involved in lots of cases, not lots of cases, like two cases, where it's been a really useful test. And we've diagnosed cirrhosis with hepatic encephalopathy being the first sign of it. Like, mm. There was no knowledge of liver disease before they came in confused. So it's, it's really useful there.
1: So so Jono's here. He sounds like he's got hepatic encephalopathy. He's still stopping the bus. <laughs> we need to ask why. So what happened to precipitate this?
0: Yeah, so you always ask why. It's, you're never going to deserve your patients by asking why. And in the case of hepatic encephalopathy, it's the, it's a it's the same things that happen again and again. An infection is really common. A bleeding from varices is really common. Constipation or diarrhea, usually constipation though. Um, kind of you've got to do cmp uec to look for electrolyte derangement and then as always look for drugs you know someone might have given them something that's metabolized um, in the liver and so how do you treat hepatic encephalopathy beck
1: so there's more or less just two options lactulose is one that always really surprised me when i saw it initially so lactulose the very same lactulose that you use for constipated betty um is a very effective (laughs) medication that increases the conversion of ammonia to ammonium. So you give lactulose with the aim of getting the patient to open their bowels three times a day.
0: And the other drug you can use is Rifaximin. So that all, it's an antibiotic um, cousin of Rifampicin. Uh, that alters uh, GI flora um, to decrease intestinal production and absorption of ammonia. And that was a real breakthrough in the last few years. In hepatic encephalopathy, all these patients, these frequent flyers, kept coming in, Give them rifaximin, and massively cut down the readmission rate in our uh, cirrhotic patients.
1: Mm, and that really is its niche. I don't think it does a huge amount for survival. No, no. But it does reduce those frequent hospitalizations. As a
0: broad concept that's a good point Beck. there's not a lot you can do for the survival of cirrhotic patients um a lot of this stuff is just kind of symptomatic
1: Mm. so it might be off on a bit of a tangent but what advice would you have for the intern covering gastro in the middle of the night and this patient who's got hepatic encephalopathy is, is you know yelling out throwing chairs
0: yeah, so you've got to be careful what you give. Haloperidol is the first uh, choice agent rather mm. than um, benzodiazepines because mm. most of those are metabolized in the liver.
1: And do you know which benzo you would choose if you ever needed to use a benzo?
0: So exazepam. So that has a good niche in alcohol withdrawal in someone with cirrhosis. You've got to give exazepam. Mm. All right, back to Jono. So he's in hospital confused and you do some blood tests and trouble is, is on the horizon again. His creatinine is 200 so, he's, he's got renal failure of some sort. You do the typical pre-renal, intra-renal, post-renal thoughts. Um, doesn't look like he's had any hypertension. There's no nephrotoxics on board. His urinary sediment is benign, and then there's no signs of obstruction. So, what does that leave?
1: Well, it could be hepatorenal syndrome.
0: It could be. It could be. So, hepatorenal syndrome. So, that's... Um, where you've, got, uh, you've got cirrhosis and then you get a whole bunch of vasoconstriction to your kidneys so it's basically like a prerenal type thing mm. you get a whole bunch of vasoconstriction to your uh, to your kidneys as a response to all this splanchnic um, vasodilation right. so that was an important concept and it pops up again here so you have got really dilated arteries to your gut and then just to maintain kind of pressure to your kidneys Um, Your body's forced to really tighten down that circulation and basically goes into pre-renal failure eventually. You've got two types. This is very arbitrary. There's type 1, which is just really acute doubling of creatinine in two weeks, and their survival is one month. And then you've got type 2, which is less severe, um, basically can't get on top of their osseities, and then there's usually some kind of insult. To cause it. To cause the renal failure. And that has a mean survival of seven months. The diagnostic criteria, Beck?
1: So cirrhosis with ascites and no other cause found to explain the renal failure.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the other other really helpful test here is, um, which is not in the diagnostic criteria, but a really common ward round question is uh, to look at the urinary sodium. So, um, so this is to differentiate between a syndrome and acute tubular necrosis. So, as we said, it's basically a type of pre renal. So, your tubules are working really, really hard to re- retain all the salt and water. So, the actual salt that ends up in your urine is really low in a syndrome, as opposed to acute tubular necrosis. Where back, what happens? I'm oh, focusing pretty hard here. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I was really, really head. It's all right. Um,
0: so that's different to acute tubular necrosis, where your your tubules are stuffed and they can't reabsorb um, your salt. So we've got high salt in ATN. All right. So you have got hepatorenal syndrome. What are we going to do for Jono? So it's um it's not much really. Um, we can withhold the diuretics. We can avoid other nephrotoxic. We can try to treat infections, but. And, um, you know, we can give albumin and we can give terlipressin to shut down that splanchnic, um, uh, vasodilation and try and get more blood to the kidneys, but really it's all a holdover. Mm-hmm. Hepatirenal syndrome is really bad news. And, uh, if someone's developed a patorenal syndrome, they need a transplant or they need palliative care, basically.
1: Mm. And t- well, type one more. So I think type two is, well, I guess they still only live seven months.
0: Yeah. It's not a great prognosis. Um, you still type one you think you know what's even the point of treating that, but you can give them present just as a bridge to to transplant all right, so John I really can't catch a break um, another another organ shuts um packs up um, he starts complaining of shortness of breath you're a clever gastroenterologist even though you haven't uh, foreseen any of these complications. <laughs> Uh, You just immediately jump to his back and start tapping. Um, But there's no stony dullness. There's no hepatic hydrothorax that we talked about. So what else could be going on?
1: So he's immunosuppressed. So a chest infection of some sort—it's
0: probably still the most likely thing. Yep. Yeah. And the other thing is he's got a—he's got an increased um, coagulation risk. So PE or pulmonary embolism is still really likely as well. Mm. But then there's two unique causes to cirrhosis um, once you've ruled out that stuff that you should think about, and that's hepatopulmonary syndrome and portopulmonary hypertension. So this is this is often the weeds a little bit. So I'm going to rush through this a little bit. It's really beyond med student level. I didn't hear about this until I started physician training. But very briefly, it's interesting though. Um, Very briefly, hepatopulmonary syndrome. So that's where you've got intravascular dilatations uh, which create intrapulmonary shunts. So uh, basically the capillaries in the lungs get too big and blood rushes through the lungs before it has a chance to pick up oxygen from the lungs. And you get the same clinical manifestations that you get in um, intracardiac shunts, such as ASDs. So you get platypnea and orthodeoxia, which is when you actually get short of breath when you sit up or stand up, um, and you and you become hypoxic when you sit up. But it gets better well. when you lie down. Yeah, exactly. So it's the opposite to heart failure, but very unusual symptom for people to complain of. It can't. It's basically has to be a shunt of some sort when they say that and how you diagnose it is a hypoxia in the presence of liver disease and then you can confirm it with a TTE transthoracic echocardiogram with contrast so you inject a bunch of agi- wait
1: with contrast
0: yep so it's so oh, okay. so the contrast is agitated saline it's not not actual um normal radiopaque contrast and you've got these tiny little bubbles that you can see in the echo and if those tiny little bubbles make it to the right left side of the heart from the right one that means there's got to be a shunt somewhere, um, and if it if it gets across in one beat, that's an intracardiac shunt. But if it gets across in like six, seven beats, that means it's an intrapulmonary mm-hmm. shunt, and they've got hepatopulmonary syndrome.
1: Yeah, it's really cool.
0: So much like uh, hepatorenal syndrome, bad news if you've got other organs um, packing up as well. You treat them with oxygen and you treat them with the liver transplant. Mm. But as I say, not definitely beyond med student level. But interesting, interesting stuff and good physiology to kind of understand. And then uh, the kind of opposite pathophysiology is portopulmonary hypertension, um, and that's pulmonary arterial hypertension associated with cirrhosis in the absence of other causes. So you've got to think about all your other stuff that we talked about in our pulmonary hypertension episode, but if all of that's nada and they've got cirrhosis, it's probably this portopulmonary hypertension. Pathophysiology, not understood, but probably some random vasoconstrictor of vasodilator, um, which is... a uh, affecting the, the pulmonary arteries more than they should because it's not being broken down by the liver and it's a manifestation exactly the same as pulmonary hypertension short of breath and a bunch of right heart failure symptoms and the rest of the diagnosis treatment is all the same as um, pulmonary hypertension
1: right so you do the right heart cath and the echo and yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah
1: okay so what happened to if we just take a take a breath we're going to go back to O now i've talked about lots of the different complications and i guess the The key ones there were hepatic encephalopathy, which we said we manage with... Did we talk about varices?
0: Yeah, varices. So we talked about varices and how you can prevent that and then also how you treat it acutely. So uh, your typical stuff, but don't resuscitate them too much and don't use normal saline. And
1: remember blood cultures and antibiotics.
0: And person. And then we talked about how they bleed more and they also coagulate more. So pretty bad luck. And then we talked about hepatic encephalopathy and how we treat that with rifaximin and lactulose and acutely give them haloperidol if we need to. Then we talked about hepatorenal syndrome which is really bad news and you can kind of hold it off with um, terlipressin but really they need a transplant. And then we talked about the lung stuff, hepatopulmonary syndrome um, as well as portopulmonary hypertension. Alright, back to Jono. So a few years down the track, he's done well, really, to get a few few years down, given he's had every complication so far. Um, but he's really decompensated in recent months with no clear precipitant. His ascites has become harder to treat with diuretics and reaccumulates more quickly. And he's uh, more jaundiced and he's more confused. You ponder and are struck with a horrible thought. I have not been screening this person for hepatocellular carcinoma, as I should be. Really not good with the preventative medicine here. All patients with cirrhosis, particularly those secondary hepatos- hepatot- hepatitis, hepatitis <laughs> which is a terrible. This is disease. what happens
1: when you get forty-five minutes in. Hepat- so particularly well, those. no one's listening by now. So secondary we just, know hepatitis we want, really. B or C need to be screened for hepatocellular carcinoma. So they need a six-monthly ultrasound. Yeah. And is that useful?
0: Yeah, it actually provides a thirty-seven percent mortality benefit. So most of the stuff we we're doing really doesn't benefit their mortality, but this does. Uh, so, you know, he's come in, he looks sick, he's ordered an ultrasound and with some trepidation you open up the report and sure enough he has multiple nodules, one 6 centimeters in size, looking very suspicious for hepatocellular carcinoma. What
1: have you done?
0: You've stuffed it. So, cirrhotic pa- so hepatocellular carcinoma, to take it back a step, um, cirrhotic patients have a really high risk of HCC, and pretty much all HCC patients have cirrhosis. Um, particularly with viral hepatitis NASH, so that's like the fatty liver stuff, and the hemochromatosis. Uh, and clinically, they often present with just kind of intractable, intractable decompensation, much like O did, um, and otherwise just kind of mass effect from the tumours so of pain, early satiety, or jaundice. How do you investigate it, Beck?
1: so you did an ultrasound and you saw those nodules but generally we use what's called a quad phase ct
0: yeah so you can screen it on ultrasound but Jono still needs a quad phase ct to diagnose it um so they get this like really particular pattern of arterial enhancement it's interesting i think it's it's the only cancer that i know of that you can diagnose purely on imaging Mm. which is pretty fancy and then, so moving on to the management. Um, so this is why screening is so important. It provides such a mortality benefit. It is a curable cancer if you catch it fast enough. So if, if it's early, you can cure it. You can cut it out. You can give them a transplant. Or you can give them radiofrequency ablation. But in Jono's case, he's got too many of them. They're too big. And he, and his child PC cirrhosis, which are all really bad things. And he's going to be for palliative management only. So that's with serafinib, which is a jack 2 uh, inhibitor, I think, and um, TACE, which is an a, um, interventional radiology procedure, transcatheter arterial chemoembolization. All right. Um, so I don't think we'll talk about this much today, um, but there's some systemic complications as well. So all cirrhotic patients are hypernatremic to some Um,
1: degree
0: that's hypo so low sodium Um, they all have hepatic osteodystrophy they get fractures Um, they're all anemic and that's multifactorial like lots of anemia of chronic disease lots of infections they lose blood from varices Uh, and as has kind of been a theme they all have immune dysfunction as well and that causes lots of complications all right so what are the take-home messages beck what are the complications we talked about
1: Alright, so the first one we talked a lot about was portal hypertension, and the complications of that are variceal hemorrhage, splenomegaly, and ascites, which can itself lead to spontaneous bacterial peritonitis and hepatic hydrothorax.
0: Then you've got complications of liver function, so hepatic encephalopathy and coagulopathy.
1: Then you've got the renal issues and the lung issues, so hepatorenal syndrome, which is really bad news, hepatopulmonary syndrome, and porto-pulmonary hypertension.
0: Um, and hepatocellular carcinoma, which is the big one you don't want to miss. That's the scary monster we don't we don't like to not pick up. And then just systemic stuff, so hyponatremia, hepatic osteodystrophy, anemia, and immune dysfunction.
1: And I guess the real take-home message here is that most of the things that happened to Jono wouldn't have happened if we had performed the surveillance that you're meant to do. So treat them before they get there. Screen yeah. for varices, screen for HCC, treat hepatitis C.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's it. All right, thanks very much for, for still listening if you are. <laughs> uh, congratulations, I guess. And uh, now I'm not going to promise anything, but I'm going to aim to not do the next podcast in two months' time. But no promises.
1: Lofty ambitions. Yeah, all right, bye. Thanks for your support, everyone.